Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to Escrow Out Loud. I'm Matt Fuller, your podcast host and the broker at Jackson Fuller Real Estate, my San Francisco real estate brokerage. Today's guest is Mr. Color, Bob Buckter. He's provided home color consulting on over 23,000 homes across the world, and more than 17,000 of those are right here in the San Francisco and San Francisco Bay Area. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Mr. Color. Thank you very much, and I'd like to say it's Dr. Color. Dr. Color, I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. No problem. We've got this off to the wrong start already. I haven't uh, recognized the degree. And let me tell you, I have seen some of your paint selections across the city of San Francisco, and they are amazing. Just incredible. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to say, I love your website. It may have as many pictures of Victorian homes on it as jacksonfuller.com does. So I love that. And I love your before and after sliders. It's uh, it's really beautiful to see what you do with homes. I know you've done plenty of press over the years, and I'm hoping I've come up with some questions that you've never been asked before. So first question I wanted to ask you is, you've worked successfully on malls, churches, hotels, and more, but it seems your true love is working with historic homes. What draws you to them, and is there a reason for the fascination? Well, it started out from the very beginning. I started painting houses in 1970, after I graduated from college. And I began immediately doing colorful exteriors. A lot of them were historic homes, Edwardians and Victorians. And then I put a small sign up on one building and people called me and then it just kind of went on and on. And I was painting these houses, had a crew and got a contractor's license. And then as I got busier, I started consulting colors on the side I was also in real estate, buying, selling, trading, and developing as a sideline. And by the time 1976 rolled around, I was done. And I just took a sailing trip around the world, came back, and decided to consult colors only as a hobby. But that picked up, and then suddenly I got busy, and then that's the way it's been ever since. Where did you go to college, if I may ask? I finished at San Francisco State University in 1969. And what was your degree in? My degrees were in social sciences, behavioral sciences, and then also a minor in business. So I was looking at uh, people and personality and also developing skills with business. It actually turned out that that's what I do. I consult with colors and uh, figure out people's tastes. And at the same time, I'm taking care of business. Yeah, no, I would uh, 100% agree. It's worked out really well for you. And I'm going to guess when you were in college that you were not anticipating a career as a color consultant. What were you thinking life had in store for you? Well, I was studying to be in the behavioral sciences and possibly in uh, public relations in business and uh, possibly getting into sales. I don't know. But the thing is, it was just a great big question mark. And then I quit college, started painting houses, and the rest is history. 
<laughs> that is really awesome. I have a lot of realtors on the show, and I always love to ask them about the first transaction they did. What was the first house that you bought and sold when you were in the buy-sell real estate phase? Do you remember? Sure. I remember all of it. My very first building I bought was a seven-unit building out near the beach in San Francisco. It was five apartments, a junior five house next to it, and then a bar. And I bought that in 1970, and then I traded that into a large apartment building on Pacific Avenue along with my parents five years later. Meanwhile, I was buying and selling and trading other smaller real estate pieces, and I was pretty busy in my 20s, let's put it that way. It sounds like it. That is really, really awesome. Given that you've got this background in real estate, this will probably be an even easier question for you than I thought. As I look through your website, you talk a lot about consulting with the owners and understanding the owner's personality to kind of choose their colors. If I came to you and said, hey, Dr. Color, I've got a house that I'm going to be selling and we're going to get it painted. I want you to pick the colors. So it's not going to be for the current occupants. How would you pick colors in that situation? Well, I look next door, look across the street and figure out the tenor of the neighborhood. So if I'm down in the tender line, I might do one thing. And if I'm in Pacific Heights, I might do something else. And so it all boils down to taste. What is tasty for that area? And what would the market be interested in as far as curb appeal? What would attract a market in to buy a piece of property? And I know all of those answers because this is what I do. And I know how to make it look good for whatever market you're trying to project into. You use the word tasty, and I love that word. I think it's just such a great word describing some of your paint jobs, in fact. <laughs> and it's not usually a word you hear in the context of paint. <laughs> so a few years ago, pre-pandemic, you were talking about the blue-gray movement in San Francisco, and you said, quote, Gray is a mindless zero contribution color. It's a negative contribution. Since then, have you seen homeowners turn away from this trend or have your thoughts on gray changed? No, that trend is still very much alive right now today. And actually, I wouldn't necessarily today, if I said that yesterday, today, I'm going to say gray is not necessarily a nasty color or anything. It's just a combination of colors is what I like to do to create a certain look. And I'm a polychromist, meaning I like to use various different colors instead of just one monochrome of color to create interest in the building. You'll work with gray, but it's not a favor. I do work with gray and I know how to do gray and I can do gray greens, gray blues, gray violets, taupes, pure grays, every kind of gray you want. You know, I have to study the taste of the individual and if it's for pride of ownership is one thing. And if it's for the market, it's another thing. So I have to caution people all the time because they always roll back into their own personal tastes. And I have to say, hey, you want to sell a building? Listen to me. So people do pay attention to me in that case. And we thank you for it. Speaking of, I once uh, had a client that was looking at a Victorian over in DeVos Triangle, and it was a stick Victorian with a very intricate six-color paint job on the outside. And they said to me, quote, I don't think I'm a six-color kind of person. 
Do people sometimes specifically come to you saying they want something with a whole lot of color or not very many? Or do you sometimes just get the sense of people like this is a person that needs a whole lot of colors on their house? Yeah, I feel my way through it. And then, you know, the whole thing is this. This this is a fact. It's not the number of colors that are on the facade. It's what the colors interact, how they interact together and what the overall net projection is out into the street to the viewer. And what I try to achieve is good taste and good taste for the client and good taste for the people that are looking at it from the street. I define good taste as when most people see something, they like it. And the opposite for bad taste, when most people see something, they don't like it. That's bad taste. So I try to create something tasty, curb appeal, but done well. And certain personalities want to be over the top and at least one foot over the other side. And I can do that. Or other people just want a real low key look. I can do that too. But a number of questions after I talk to people and I just know what to do right away. I look at how people are dressed, how they did their interior, the color of their car, their clothes. I pick up hints everywhere in order to come up with uh, colors that people are going to like for their own personal consumption and or for the market. When you're doing the consultations by mail, which I imagine you did a lot of during the pandemic, did you lose some of that sense of who the owners were or were there other ways you adapted to find out information about them and kind of incorporate that into your color consulting? When I do a long distance job that I'll never see the building and never will, what I do is have people fill out a questionnaire. It's a two-page, very simple questionnaire, and then that pretty much nails it for me. And the thing about it is the client does not have the luxury of seeing the colors I'm talking about. I look at the questionnaire and I figure it out from there. And because of that, I charge, say, about half of what I charge if I go out and do a personal consultation locally, because it only takes me half the amount of time. But whatever I do elsewhere turns out iconic and spectacular, and people are tickled to death everywhere, because they will have something that nobody else has. And enjoying that building for years with compliments, you know, it's just nothing but a win-win. Everybody loves it. And I do astonishing work for people, even remotely. Yeah. And that's actually a great question I had for you is, as you've consulted on these homes around the world, how much of color philosophy and happiness is local? And how much of it is just universal? Well, and a lot of it has to do with current trends that are a part of a people's frame of references. And Originally, 125 to 150 years ago, other colors and other palettes were used that appealed to those people at that time. And now, pretty much all the way across, everybody has about the same interest field. So knowing that, I usually am able to come up across with the right colors for people that they're pleased with. And ultimately, in every job I do, I have the client tell the painters to test these colors in an area I set circle so that they can be sure that they're in the, going in the right direction before they pull the trigger on with the painters. So there are a couple of steps to make sure that everything's going to be right before the whole paint job goes on, because the last thing I want to see is the paint job gets done and they hate it. That's the last thing. And I want to tell you, 
that virtually never happens because of the cautious steps that we take going into it. I remember when I first moved to San Francisco and I would be walking around with the dogs and I would see like these splotches of color on a house and I was like, what's going on with this? And then I was like, oh, they're getting ready to paint them. Eventually I realized after they painted them those colors, you know, and like test colors weren't really something you saw in suburban homes where I grew up or in the middle of nowhere, Michigan as well. Test colors, if you take nothing away from this podcast, take away test colors and <laughs> trying it out before you completely commit. You are a very, very smart man. Okay, I want to interject here that you should not test colors like you throw paint balloons up on the building. Splotch, splotch, splotch. You have to put the colors in the areas that I designate they're going in order to get the right picture. So you put the window sash color on the window sash. You put the casing around it in the next color. You do the main body next to that. And you put the bottom color adjacent to that. That's the proper way of testing the colors. Otherwise, you see chaotic colors thrown up on the building, that's just not going to make any sense for people. I discourage that. Very good advice. So speaking of colors and how kind of color tastes have changed over time, can you talk a little bit about the colorist movement and how it started here in San Francisco? Sure. Back in the mid to late 1960s, as everybody can remember from their history books, if they weren't alive yet, that the Haight-Ashbury had a lot of drugs going on and people, psychedelics, and seeing a lot of different wild colors. And a few of these people that call themselves hippies, I think I was probably one at that time, went ahead and did some wild-ass things on the buildings just for the heck of it. And this is San Francisco. Anything goes. So they got away with doing some wild things. And then it kind of caught on. But a few people like myself one or two or three people started ordering chaos and creating complementary colors and a balanced color scheme. And that's when it really first started taking off in the late 60s. And by the time the early 70s came around, there was a couple of authors, Michael Larson and Elizabeth Pomata, published a book called The Painted Ladies. And that has become a generic term all across the United States and beyond and still is a household term that gives people an idea about maybe what people do in San Francisco. And it started out that way and it caught on and it grew. And then more and more books were published on the painted ladies and versions of the painted ladies. And now that's been cooking along just fine for the last maybe 45 to 50 years. I'm in my 52nd year now doing this. And, uh, in the last five, six years, people are trending toward all black, all dark blue, all dark gray, all dark brown, but all one color. And I was quoted once by saying, that's an ignorant thing to do. And I've done work in Australia, and I've done work around in Europe and Central and South America, and of course, Canada, but mainly the United States. And I'm still fortunately popular, so I can't complain. Where in South America did you get to consult on colors? Well, I mean, you know, I, I make a lot of trips down to Costa Rica, so I've done some jobs down there. I'm down in Costa Rica 80 days a year. I'm a conservation of the rainforest down there. It's a big part of my life, but I have done colors for 
a few other folks down there. And of course, they're all tickled to death. They love it. Interiors too. I've done work in Mexico City, Argentina, and Peru, and Chile, and a few other countries in Central America too. It's a little bit unusual down there because it's a whole different mindset. So I haven't really taken off in a lot of those areas, but I have been requested and have done some nice work down there. The decorative schemes, all of the little things that are medallions and various things that may be added on to a Victorian for decoration, are they generally universal just across time periods or do they vary a lot by geography and where you are in the world? No, they're definitely a go according to time periods. So Victorian style was popular architecturally in the U.S., Canada, Central, and South America. It's all over the place. Even, you know, New Zealand, Australia, and other parts of the world, you know, Singapore have Victorians. And the trend continued architecturally. So you get friezes and dental blocks and swags and brackets and corbels and posts and beams and Doric, Ionic column tops. It's pretty much the same, and it just transcends in a straight line. So there isn't that much variation. And architecture in general, I think, is the same thing. It just keeps going on a plane through the years, and then it transitions into another plane and another plane. This popularity gets picked up everywhere as a trend. And uh, that's what I've seen. And I've been all over the world. I've been going on 90 countries because I'm an adventurer, too. And I've sailed around the world. I've flown around the world. I had my eyes open everywhere I went, talked to people, looked at all these buildings in the streets, and uh, came back, and I'm still doing my thing and enjoying it. Do you have a favorite architectural style, having visited that many places and viewed that many styles? Well, I have colored and treated just about every style of architecture that's ever been produced. And my specialty and my one love is Victorian slash Edwardian architecture, because it's got so many possibilities of coloring that just always presents a challenge. And of course, the biggest challenge is the client and why the client is calling me up. So I have to find out why they're calling me and how they think they want it to look. And I interpret their tastes and put it out into something that is in good taste to the general public. So number one, I have to please the client. Number two, I need to please the general public. And number three, and finally, I need to like it too. That's awesome. That is such a great answer. Speaking of trends and timelessness, Pantone's 2022 color of the year is very peri, a periwinkle blue. It seems like a very Dr. Color color. Any very peri-based homes in your future? Well, my facade here on Vermont Street is a blue-gray with a periwinkle cast. And one lady that was working for, Sharon Williams, who has visited me a few times, drove by on the 101, which is right adjacent to my house. Looking over at it, she said, I enjoy looking at your purple house. And I was shocked. But it has a periwinkle purplish cast to it. So I like that. And it's got a little tweaking power that jolts people a little bit. And that's where I wanted this facade to be is just almost one foot over the top, but not quite. And that same thing with my place on 20th Street. It's powerful, but well done, if I may say. So basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, Pantone drove by your house 
and gave us our 2022 color of the year, Very Perry. So thank you for your contribution and helping Pantone out. Sounds like you were a couple of years ahead of them. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, Pantone is traditionally a printer's ink. People don't usually pick those colors to paint their houses. This is printer's ink. You know, you go to a paint store and get their color decks and choose from those. But sure, you can match up Pantone colors if you want. And I don't know how long Pantone colors are going to last on a wooden facade facing south, especially a dark color, but (laughs) good luck. Spoken like a professional. I think I also picked up there that uh, your San Francisco neighborhood is Petrero Hill. I am actually in the mission, right on the edge of the mission and adjacent to Petrero Hill, which is on the other side of the 101. So technically I have a zip code and a location in the mission district, but it's right at the base of Petrero Hill. Gotcha. Is that uh, your favorite neighborhood spot in San Francisco, or do you have one? Well, I lived over on Dolores Park for many, many years. Uh, I bought the building in 1975, and I lived there for a total of about 20, 25 years. And that's a beautiful part of San Francisco. It's a little bit noisy because there's so many people out there and, and traffic's a little bit rugged. But weather is great. And in the mission, you know, as the San Francisco districts go, it's got some of the best weather in town. And that's what I like. You know what I was doing in 1975, Dr. Keller? What? Being born. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I love that. And I look around now that I'm 75.5 years old. I'm looking around to see if there's anybody older than me still standing. Oh, that's, uh, you know, it's always concerning when you're the oldest person in the room, right? (laughs) Well, it's a little bit, but the thing is, I think I have a younger outlook. So, you know, if you close your eyes or don't look at me, you might think you're talking to a guy that might be 45. I would believe it, particularly with your exploits around the world. So I've got one last question for you. Obviously, the number one tip I can give to someone who is thinking of painting their house and picking colors is to hire Dr. Color. I'm not going to ask you to give away any more tips, but do you have one thing people should absolutely positively not do when they're thinking about picking colors for their house? Like, just don't do this. Well... A general answer would be don't pick something that's super outrageous that's going to get you ostracized by your neighborhood. Be a little bit socially responsible. Don't be a total wild man. Just try to use a little bit of good taste and don't go out there and do something completely that doesn't make sense to people. I try to avoid that myself. I don't know if I answered your question very well. I think that the answer I heard is don't piss off the neighbors with your paint job. (laughs) Well, you could say that. You could say that. But people underestimate. I mean, neighbors have very strong feelings about everything in San Francisco, including paint jobs. And I actually also think that's kind of one of the nice things when you see people putting up test colors, hopefully correctly, as you've described, is you know that your neighbors are up to something and it starts a conversation. Sure. Yeah. Have you ever had uh, colors change dramatically based on neighbor's input? Explain that a little bit better. Like the client was kind of all set in one direction and, you know, then they had kind of showed all the colors around to their neighbors who were like, no way, don't do that. And then the client was like, okay, I'll do something totally different. Or is it generally, you know what neighbors are going to like because you've been doing this so long and it's never really been an issue? It's rarely an issue. 
And I always advise my clients, don't listen to these other people. Don't pay attention to what they see. They don't really know what's going on or what is to come. Because by the time it does get done with one of my designs, most likely they're going to like it. I believe it. Your designs, your color consultations are all over the world. And tens of thousands of them are right here in the Bay Area. In San Francisco, you can find before and afters on your website, which is drcolor.com. So thank you, Dr. Color, for taking time from all you do to share all of this with us today. And to all of our listeners, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast news with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast.